Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Dr. Brandon Chikotsky, the Assistant Professor of Professional Practice and Marketing at TCU's Neely School of Business. On this episode, Dr. Chikotsky and I discuss the general demographics of entrepreneurs, how technology and marketing strategies have changed over the years, his new book, now available for purchase on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, titled Sales Millionaires, Industry Tales and Life Lessons from those who made it and much more. Here's our interview now. Brandon, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, we're very happy to have you. So first off, why don't you tell me a little bit about your role at TCU? Sure. I'm a full-time professor in marketing and focus on data analytics, marketing management, and innovation spaces. And with that, I sometimes involve myself heavily in the TCU Cell Center, which has quickly become a national leader. Can you explain that, the TCU Cell Center, a little bit? Yeah. So we teach market applied or enterprise sales. We work directly with companies that partner with us. We have over 260 students students and would grow if we had the capacity. We grew beyond our staff or lectureship and executive lectures. And with that, we actually have real sales. So we put students through intensive training, about 150 hours, and then they actually sell real product to the market. And with that, they engage the management director level and C-suite level. From my experience, there is no better teacher than experience. Is that the case for you? I mean, that that feels like kind of the point of actually getting students out there selling instead of just kind of learning about selling. Yeah. I mean, the word got out. I think you and I both see that. And I know companies do as well. The average earnings upon graduation is over 86,000 at this point with many at six figures. And the target earnings with commission can really have, it has no ceiling. And so it's quicker for students to ramp up upon joining a company, which means it's more cost effective to hire a student who's done the real thing. And our students are being pulled now from all over the country. And and moreover, I, I think because we are so focused on doing the real thing, not playing dress up and having real market applied principles, as opposed to some of the 20th century unethical approaches like yes pattern and rejection handling and, and body mirroring and things like that, which are, are important to know about as to what took place and how people were mistrained or, or say misguided. And now what we focus on is pipeline due diligence, empathy for the client to ensure there's alignment, strategic listening, which is really having a line of questions to help understand the pain and ultimate touch points that the customer needs or the client needs that perhaps our service or products can provide solutions for helping quantify what that value is to ensure that we're at a cost positive or or a net positive approach and what's offered and then ultimately getting to a deal that's good for them. No, that's great. And it feels like, at least from my shoes, most of the people that I know or what seems like the most popular careers nowadays are usually like something content-based, like someone wants to be a podcaster, a YouTuber, a writer, or, or something like that, something in the content sphere, or entrepreneurship. I'm curious if you have any insight when you talk to your students, if if some of them are trying to just take a class or if you're all if you're talking to people who are looking for entrepreneurship sales or whatever as their career. Well, I've been an angel investor for several years and I have 22 vested positions. I'm part of 10 syndicates. And I can tell you that if you go on, say, my angelist profile, some of the touch points involve Web3 in the future marketplace. Some of it involves media. And this is somewhat of a Gen Z area of competence, at least from a consumer's perspective. And so I can I can more credibly tell them what to avoid, perhaps, and, and where to participate. And these flash or hype markets where a lot of the interests or the trends take place are often um, at their expense if they're, say, thinking they're investing or or maybe giving their free time and free data away as to their consumer media consumption. But as to the content creator experience, I caution 
against it unless a student really has an objective and a broader picture in mind uh, as to how they want to monetize and also aware that the content that they give to a platform is not necessarily owned. Yeah. And I think people forget about that. A lot of kids will look at someone like a YouTuber that they really like and say, I could do that. That's easy. But there's an actual business model to it. I'm curious before we kind of go too far down the rabbit hole, what what some of the materials on your syllabus are? What specifically are the different topics that you're teaching students at TCU? Sure. So right now I have just about 400 students. It's the largest enrollment under, awesome. one, thanks, under one professor at TCU. And I think that's happened because one, the class I teach now called marketing management is for all majors. And as a as a course that catches everything in business, so to speak, everyone from information sciences, or excuse me, information systems to supply chain, real estate, finance, accounting, with all these incredible students in our class, to show them marketing is to show them how in the future they're going to need to build in-house marketing teams to grow their customer base or user base and to procure the right enterprise deals if it's a B2B framework. Also, many of these executives or future executives that will pass through the TCU Neely School of Business are going to probably have to fire some marketing agencies or some marketing directors or other. And so I want them to have the discernments and capabilities. And that starts with understanding what marketing is from a rudimentary standpoint, then moving in the case study to see how it's applied in the market with examples. And the last thing is we have a course client for each team and students are put into teams where real businesses in the mid-market who have real marketing challenges are then solved by our students in teams. And then their biggest grade weight of the class is determined on whether or not the solutions they provide are substantiated, defensible, and ultimately pass the sniff test of the companies in me. Because when they're pitching an idea to an investor, that's something that they have to do. Like, you know, I mean, that feels pretty replicable in the real world. Is that the intention? Well, it's not so much that everyone goes into venture scale and needs to fundraise sure. or capitalize through stage financing. Stage financing. I think the ability to understand product market fit or message market fit in a marketing experience is really about running in-house operational marketing and then third-party third party contracts with, with a, a good discernment, if they do go and fundraise for whatever business that they're part of, whether it's something that needs mezzanine financing or something that's maybe at, at, at zero and needs to go to one, the skills or the peripheral knowledge that they get about marketing, so from the internal operations to the external marketplace that they evaluate, will certainly help them make the case. And how was your path to academia? For example, my aunt, she went to school, then went to grad school then went for her master's or PhD or her became a TA, became a professor and essentially just went to school and never left. I'm curious if your story is the same or if you took maybe some time off after college, worked in the real world a little bit and then came back. I've always run two careers at once. One of them has been as a student moving into academia and the other has been as a business operator or a chief marketing officer. And now more in the advising and consultancy experience as an investor. And, and I do some syndication work too, which has been really interesting and going back into a fundraising experience and then helping, helping select and evaluate deals on behalf of capital. So when I was a student as an undergraduate, I knew within the first 10 minutes of my first class that I wanted to one day be a professor and give back. I also gave myself a good, what I thought would be 30 or 40 years as a trajectory to merit the insight and maybe have the kind of late stage altruism to give back. It just happened sooner than I ever anticipated, in part because some of the windfalls came earlier than I ever thought would happen. And, and that might be attributed to running these two careers at once, where 
I, unlike most people, would organize my day in such a strong regimen and with such rigidity that to break it meant I felt uncomfortable rather as opposed to doing something hard made me uncomfortable. I actually liked doing those hard things so regularly that without them, I actually got uncomfortable. So I used to do an all-nighter once a week and schedule it so that I could gain an advantage in some of the things I was doing. I don't do that now. It's not so much responsible for health or or maybe my uh, my overall stamina. But at one point, I could, I could sustain that. I'm a student right now. I'm a law student at Texas A&M School of Law here in Fort Worth, Texas, where TCU is also located. And the institution is top 30 as a law school in the country. The program I'm in, which is a master's of legal studies and real estate focus, has been already helpful in some of the syndication work and real estate development work I do. But to answer the question more succinctly, I made sure that every company I joined or any big success I had, I then started a new academic chapter to explore questions that I had for the next chapter coming up. And by running ahead and, and also studying slowly, if that makes sense, I was able to build that two-career track and ultimately arrived to a ranking professorship in full time while also having the bandwidth while in the role to spin up companies, invest and advise and do other things. That's not easy, man. I mean, is that kind of two trajectory, that parallel path, something that you would recommend to other people? Do you think that like, I mean, it sounds like you're very happy and successful because of that. That's also decently unconventional. Usually people go career or they go college. I know I worked while I was at college, but not it doesn't sound like to the extent of which you were is is that path that you're referring to something you would recommend to Gen Zers or 19 to 24s uh, that might be listening right now? Well, I mean, you run a, a studio and production operation on the side, so you you've got something going on, and I know you and I both would probably you and I both would suggest to people that if you have bandwidth and something that you want to build as to enterprise or maybe family or recreation rather, go all in. And when you do that, you get more out of it. So the input output ratio then starts to make more sense as opposed to someone who's kind of middling into something or puts their toe in the water. I mean, I looked at it like my evenings were either going to be on some mindless media consumption or what I think sometimes young people might get into like a death scroll or something that they're doing in socialized behavior that isn't necessarily constructive or helpful because they're not around people who are brilliant enough or enterprising enough or forward thinking enough or other, or maybe from a, a higher value network experience or community or family or other. And, and I think you can strategically put yourself in position socially that is, um, that, that is really, that creates great residual. But if you have other control factors, like what you do with your time and also where you put your energy, your capital and your focus, I kind of think of it the same way strategically, which is I have a really, really good time when I'm around the business community. I love the, I love the people I meet. I think they're often uh, above average intelligence, if not sometimes brilliant. And they're, they see a, they have a market scope that's, that is proficient and narrow, but also broad in the way that, are, that they're aware and reading. And, and so I get really good insight that way. And then on the personal and private end of things, the way I read and the way I, I build companies or maybe organize capital or other in, that, in those areas. Those moments where I'm I'm fully alone, I get this synthesis. And I think by having a two-track approach to career, which for me was academia and, and business, and for someone on to I rec- to whom I recommend building a two-track career, which could be something totally different, like say their their daytime work in sales and their their evening work in arts or something like that. By going all in and having this long form growth, you begin to synthesize all the different interdisciplinary ideas. And then at some point, you, you see this merger or convergence of capability where maybe you can fundraise effectively 
and a syndicate, but you also can do it effectively for your independent brick and mortar studio. Or maybe another example could be something like a student of mine has 200,000 followers on one channel and 200,000 followers on another, on another channel, and yet she's studying accounting. And by understanding accounting and going all into that thought space, she's been be- better able to organize some of the systems that support in a software stack her generative growth of users. And by having that system thinking, she's getting synthesis. You mentioned accounting. You talk to a lot of students and it feels to me very well versed on a variety of, you know, business concentrations, whether it's branding, marketing, whatever, you know, sales. I'm curious if you have an opinion on what kind of entrepreneurship concentration you would recommend people to focus their energy on. If if there was one skill that might be the most advantageous to really put a lot of energy into. I mean, the students of mine that are most entrepreneurial and are the most numeric typically succeed. And I don't necessarily on the idea of the project they're working on. I just mean in the long run. I'm on my 10th year of lectureship and that's what I've seen. And I'm saying, I'm, I'm really talking about finance. Finance is the skill. It's the language of capital markets. It's also how they're going to best understand their performance and their P&L. And it's also the language that investors speak and understand and think through and dream in. And so when we are fluent and have a fluent conversation with a startup founder, it's more assuring that their idea that where they believe something is scalable or has product market fit or other, and they also understand the unit economics of what they're doing and the capital term sheet of what they're proposing, that typically means we have someone who's mature, typically a higher emotional intelligence because it, it took time to learn the language. It took time to think through how their business is modeled and, and valued and will be valued. And I just see a kind of soft correlation in that EQ intelligence. Uh, there's an intelligence and then there's an emotional intelligence space. And I'm just noticing that those with more financial competence typically have that higher EQ. And that means they can better calibrate decisions, think in a more analytical and responsible way, as opposed to just driving passion forward all the time and focusing on things that can really break a business like too much emphasis on company culture as opposed to the, the customer and growth metrics and stage finance value and prospective windfalls. There's a quote I heard that is essentially like, you know, create and build with no fear, but edit and reduce with, with no mercy. And sometimes when emotions get involved, people lose that ability to edit or reduce or cut with no mercy. I'm curious from, from your perspective, Brandon, how specifically um, technology and strategic marketing practices have evolved throughout your career. I think you have a advantageous position being in academia to be a little bit more hands-on in seeing where trends are moving, where trends are moving toward and from. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah. I mean, when I first got started, everything was about the cloud, the cloud, the cloud. Then everything went to big data, big data, big data. And then blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. And now everything's AI, AI, AI. And we'll soon move into probably something more concrete or consequential with metaverse, 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 or whatever else that that next kind of pop or innovation or bubble space is where you see a buzzword fly through most of the deal flow put in front of angel syndicates. I can tell you that on trend, what's used internally is often just better software, better dashboarding, better UI, UX for operational automation systems and just operational marketing. I mean, from the CMO desk, what I saw is we could tell a story with some data insights about our existing and prospective customers. That storytelling helped us inform all of the different touch points in our marketing campaigns and those working with us like budget procurement, if it was an in-house conversation, or maybe it's about allocation and just more responsible messaging and 
and ways that we can create more predictive analytics to get better uh, marketing return on investment and, and more responsible expenditure. Now, I think what we have are software tech stack build outs that engage customers where people used to, in an analog format, engage in an effective way that now informs a machine learning system. That system then has to, on with monitoring, execute in a way that a, a person would as to decision and decision trees. And then now as those decisions are rendered, they're evaluated and then reprocessed. And that's really fun to see. I've seen chatbots become more sophisticated of late. I've seen internal Slack conversations become an evaluative tool to determine inefficiencies in ideas or recurring themes or other that should be acted on that haven't been acted on. So prompts that are coming also internally that then can better inform campaign calendaring and, and such. Uh, I've seen some really good attribution metrics that we didn't used to have where an agency would run a campaign and give claim to how people would click through or buy something. And now I think we can better substantiate how some a campaign or a message or other had attribution. Attribution is a big term that really signifies how money was made in the marketing experience. And it's one of those ways that people are learning where the money's actually going when it comes to the marketing side of things. I'm curious, Brandon, with your innate hands-on ability to see who are becoming entrepreneurs, um, not only do you teach, but you you do a lot of other guest speaker lectures and and stuff like that. I'm curious if there are certain, I don't know if you'd call them behavior profiles or demographics that really might maybe paint the picture of who an entrepreneur is, or maybe if there are, if it's more like environmental factors that affect who or what um, might might become an entrepreneur. I'm kind of always just curious, talking with entrepreneurs on the show, everyone's like, entrepreneurs are, are different and special. And I'm I'm kind of curious how or why, because you're seeing people who are turning into them What's your insight there? No, the most successful entrepreneurs are probably in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah. And they're, they're people that are not necessarily special, but rather have a special expertise and the moxie to go and get something done where there's a pain point or a gap to fill. Oftentimes, they're not trying to scale something nationally or internationally. They're building a company that can stand on its own, often bootstrapped or family-funded. And in that, maybe they go and get some leveraged capital and collateralize or create a kind of force liquidation schedule to build out something from an analog process to something in a more modern form business. Uh, I've seen that a few times. And I'm also finding that some of the most entrepreneurial people are folks that are not necessarily edgy, wearing a hoodie or speaking in a language of the future or in some kind of futuristic technological biz blab. Instead, they are finance majors who are organizing capital to uh, buy boring businesses that are at break even or barely cash positive, better operationalizing them, rolling them back up into a higher speculative value, and then finding a marketplace. I'm seeing a lot of that acquisition model as the baby boomer generation has a lot of stagnant businesses that have some analog process that, that could be improved upon. And, and, and sometimes these companies are at such a low valuation relative to their potential impact in their market ecosystem or their small market sector that they really are good buys. And so a lot of my students who are focused on that kind of approach, who are very entrepreneurial, are very systemized. They often wear suits. They're respectful. They have no problem with the authority of banks or any, kind of, any other kind of capital issuance communities. And if anything, they're deferential to them. They're at the country clubs. I find them to be uh, mature and easy to work with. I think the the kind of edgy artist persona that maybe builds software in their dorm room and tells tells everyone where to stick it, and then they go and build something that the world has never seen before and 
raises venture capital and everyone demands to participate and and it runs up their cap term sheet value. Well, that's so anomalous that it's actually a, probably a bad model to follow. It's also not necessarily the persona I, I would encourage my students to make, live live as. But if someone really is just bent on being different and maybe came from an alternative community, such as, say, an offshoot long tail gaming experience or some music musical community or other, and they can match that with financial competence, the understanding of how capitalize and grow a company, knowing what growth metrics apply and how customers should be listened to and engaged all the time. And in that obsession with customer, customer needs and customer path, um, I think then perhaps we can allow eccentricities or or say encourage eccentricities to uh, be as pronounced as they, as they desire. But I can tell you that I'm in a business school that's um, upon graduation, a top 10 earner uh, for our graduates. And that's not income adjusted, or I should say cost of living adjusted around the country. We're ranked number nine in America. If you come through TCU Neely School of Business, no matter what major you're in, you're going you're gonna to average into a top 10 earner. And the higher end of that is often folks going into finance firms or into management consulting firms or, or doing something that contributes in generative capital. Then later, after knowing something, seeing something, participating in something, they then go start companies as opposed to claiming to be born an entrepreneur and refusing to take direction or insight or social cues or whatever it is that maybe is glamorized in some kind of wonder boy or wonder girl syndrome that you oftentimes find in the hoodie. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's very, uh, very well said. But you are, are, are somewhat of an entrepreneur yourself as well. And I'd like to hear more about kind of that side of things. You have a new book currently available for purchase called Sales Millionaires, colon, Industry Tales and Life Lessons from Those Who Made It. And it's not your first book. I'd I'd love to give you the opportunity to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, thanks. So Sales Millionaires is inspired by the TCU Sales Center, which has four principles that I think deserve stories around them. These principles are setting our students on a careers earning path that is is really it's unmatched in the country from what I've seen. And when you've got companies like Boston Consulting Group coming down, or or uh, Meta, or VMware, and some of the legacy companies hiring our students in, along with mid market companies on the rise, particularly in logistics and some of the spaces where you see an explosion and in of growth and, and excitement. I recognized that there was there was more story to tell. So what I did is I interviewed 14 millionaires who made their money in sales to illuminate the lessons and insights that they had. And through these interviews, I also drew in the same principles that we teach at the TCU Sales Center and backed it up with formal scholarship, which you'll find throughout the book Interwoven to take anecdote and substantiate it as to how it correlates in real life. Are there, are there certain commonalities that you found throughout millionaires and those stories? Is there, is there maybe like a through line that you notice, you know, all these people had this in common? Yeah, they're ethical. They actually care about their client. Yeah, their client, there's client empathy. And we, while they may not always get to establish a relationship with their counterpart, their client is someone they care about no matter what the client's condition, no matter how the client treats them necessarily. And ultimately, what they're trying to do is help um, cost. Uh, do cost savings or help them increase revenue or grow their user base or customer base or ensure that their operational efficiency increases or something that is of service or helpful. And they do it first by due diligence, understanding who the client and the enterprise around them is about and what they need, but perhaps from what they can research in a deep dive. Then when engaging the client, they do so in a way that doesn't waste their time. It's not vague, it's direct, it's clear. And then when they sit with them or meet with them, 
they are actively listening. And by listening, they're able to better align whether or not there's something they can do to help. And if they can't help them, if there's something in a product or service offering that is not meant for the client or the company, they do not sell. Instead, they build that relationship. They maintain their honesty throughout. And likely what happens is the counterpart becomes a referral engine for someone uh, that for someone for whom the salesperson can help. And that social proofing and that relationship base uh, really does go far. And then oftentimes these, sale, these people who made so much money in sales, they are operating at a high dollar value because the people that they built relationships with, the companies they're engaging, this executive presence that they built through all of their learning, well, it, it often has more impact and consequence and bigger contract volume. And when you are dealing with people like this, I find that there's a, a common thread, which is that they're respectful. They're, they're often not even the most articulate, but they're just thoughtful. They listen well. They do not spend much time talking when they're in a sales experience. They, they spend more time listening. They have humility. They're coachable in-house. Their pipeline is something that matters to them. And that means that they're really learning as much as they can about their prospects before they ever talk to them to honor their time. They have product knowledge and feature knowledge and those things that I, I'm sure matter at the very end of the conversation, but they recognize what's most important is the pain point and the needs payoff of their of their client and the counterpart. And along the way in their career arc, they're helping people. They're training people under them. They're uh, they're ensuring that their their training and learning never ends, and that's mostly about the industry space, their industry sector. It's learning about their counterparts. It's it's showing up to their client relationship touch points and life events if that's ever appropriate or relevant. And they're also looking ahead to what the market asks of them and what innovation likely means. They're using in their own technology uh, within in house and their own training modules in house. Uh, new uh, new systems that accelerate and, and, and create an efficiency for how they see data, how they build pipeline, how they conduct research, and how they evaluate their own sales calls or other to determine where they can be better and more client empathetic. And, and it supports your evidence and your claim that entrepreneurs are um, have a high emotional quotient, you know, that, that they have an emotional IQ, you know, because they're empathetic and they, and they see things as acts of service sometimes. And I think that that is the easiest way to connect with people is to not want anything from them, you know, just kind of provide space for people to be people and be not even altruistic because that's like trying to be something, but just kind of being, you know, I mean, I, I think there's something really special about being present with someone. So that makes me really happy to hear that kind of the assumptions that that I have in my head of how millionaires become millionaires is because they're, they're you know, backstabbing anyone they can find along their way is actually counterintuitive is a false narrative, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. And it's, it's, it's counterintuitive because of the reputation perhaps of the 20th century of what sales was. Mm -hmm. And I can say that now it's it's really focused on value and delivering value. And if you're able to deliver a tremendous amount of value, you're going to capture some of that value. And that's where the earnings are. No, that's beautiful, man. Before we wrap up, Brandon, um, I always ask my guests the same final question. With especially everything you've got going on, entrepreneurship and the e-commerce industry can be extremely high stress. And I'm curious, what are some hobbies and interests you have in your free time that you do to ensure a healthy work-life harmony? Yeah, I just finished my season with the Fort Worth Wooden Bat League for 40 and up, and everyone's knees and ankles are hurting, I'm sure. Uh, we, we lost our championship game, but I, we played so hard, and, and a lot of guys come together from different industries and, and grit, and you know, give some grit and grind to that. 
I play a bunch of basketball as well downtown with the, with the business group. And that's incredibly fun. And we, we all pretend to be younger and have more vitality, but we, uh, which we, you know, we regret in the sauna after the games. Uh, but when we're playing, we're having fun. We're letting it out. Uh, I, I try to jump in on swing jazz ensembles when I can. This is jazz manure. It's kind of a 1930s and 40s style chop music that has uh, some really some really incredible timeless tunes that most people have heard of but didn't quite know uh, where it came from and and playing to those origins and and being part of the percussive back end of it the percussionist is really fun and I, I think for me being a professor and lecturing feels like like it's a meaningful impact space you know empowering uh, a new generation of business people with insights and case studies and relationships through Q&As uh, with guest lectures and, and my network that I can bring in. And so it doesn't feel like work. And I, and so I don't really have the stress. I think a lot of people do. And I try not to talk about it too much because I know a lot of people are in jobs that maybe they they feel a bit burdened by. Uh, but but I feel set free in a sense by intellectually and, and with enterprise. Uh, so entrepreneurially, by being a professor, I've got incredible colleagues in the senior category all the way down to the new hires that have come in after me. And, and and TCU Neely School of Business and the TCU Sales Center and the marketing department under which it's housed are all incredible partners and supportive. And all of our professor contract structures are modeled in a way to play into our strengths and how we can best engage our community for, for whether it's Fort Worth, Texas, which is one of the fastest growing markets in America, or more broadly in Texas and uh, in business markets outward. And I'm, I run an advisory with some brilliant partners, and some of that involves placement capital with inter- international lenders that want to invest in the Texas energy market and get involved in Bitcoin mining uh, with substations on oil extraction, energy gas extraction um, here in Texas. That's been fascinating. Uh, and so that seems like a hobby, even though it has a, a high touch point, high value touch point in terms of the deal and the deal action. Incredibly complex and fun. When I'm doing those kind of things at my breakfasts or lunch meetings, I, I'm satiated the whole time. I'm, I feel alive. It feels like recreation, though. If there's contracts and commissions involved, of course. And then the, the last thing is, I, I just try to read as much as I can and take on the books recommended to me. If it's been recommended for a third time, I'll finally acquiesce and and put put the book in my hand and go for it. And sometimes I, I will sit in my office or at home and I'll read half the day, and I'm and I'm in a way paid to do that, uh, so that I can take ideas and then pass them on to a cohort of students, which seems to get bigger every semester. I'm grateful for that. Um, I don't take it lightly. My my TCU Horn Frogs are a hometown constituency. I grew up here in Fort Worth where I'm a professor. So everything I'm doing here matters to me. And part of my job, I believe, is to help make Caltown, which is Fort Worth, Texas's nickname, help make Caltown one of the strongest cities in America and, and hopefully um, help win the future together. That's great, Brandon. I really appreciate you coming by the show. And good luck with the millions of things you have going on, my friend. Thanks. Thanks so much, Alex. It's been it's been great talking. And I hope that some of the things I shared are of value and, and help inspire some folks out there. Absolutely. And if anyone's interested in, in that book, Brano is referring to Sales Millionaires, Industry Tales and Life Lessons from Those Who Made It. It's now available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. That's right. Go get you one. Share the book. It's meant for sales members in the rising professional category and also team leads who, when they read it, might realize they can just give it to their new sales associates and help them in their training and hopefully execution. Thanks a lot, Brandon. All right, take care. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Brandon Chikotsky, for joining me on the show and come back on Tuesday when I talk with Samantha Kazuch, the founder and CEO of The Manuscripting Journal, a holistic approach to becoming a better entrepreneur through accountability and ritualistic journaling. For more information about Dr. Chikotsky, you can connect with him on LinkedIn, follow him on Twitter at Chikotsky, 
or on Instagram and Facebook at B. Chikotsky. You can also visit his website at neely.tcu.edu slash Chikotsky. To purchase his book, Sales Millionaires, Industry Tales and Life Lessons from Those Who Made It, visit Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. That's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until then. 